Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. We have a wonderful text this morning. And um, I'll tell a little story before I read it, which is a number of years ago I was a pastor at a church that was, the church was wonderful, the congregation was wonderful. And some of the elders were wonderful, but some of the elders were not wonderful. And we knew this before we came. They'd lost a couple hundred people in the year or two before I got there. And uh, because of the way the church was structured, about the only thing I could do was preach. And so I preach my guts out. Because if God was going to rescue that church from its nastiness towards one another, it was going to be through uh, repentance. And uh, so uh, I was preaching in Matthew. And if you know anything about Matthew, Matthew is a pretty intense book. And if you know anything about Jesus, Jesus is pretty intense. So if you actually preach Jesus instead of just talking about him, and you preach him from the Gospels, it's pretty intense, trust me. And if you think John is nicer because he's the apostle of love, no, actually John is worse. Have you, anybody ever read the Gospel of John? <laughs> it's like, fasten your seatbelts and make sure that your airbags aren't popped. So I was preaching, I was preaching my guts out, hard preaching. And uh, one Sunday I asked a friend to come over from the PCA church here in town that was it's a completely different PCA church now. And I asked him if he'd come over and preach for me. It wasn't the pastor at the time, it was a friend. And uh, so he came over and he knew what I was dealing with because he'd grown up in this church and his brother was in this church. And when he came over, I didn't talk to him about what to preach, but he preached this section of Romans that we're going into. And of course, everybody in the church absolutely adored it. You know? Preach the second half of Romans 8, you know? And I remember thinking to myself, and I went to David afterwards, I said, David, honestly, you know what's going on in this church. And you come into this church and you cherry pick the second half of Romans 8? Thanks a lot, you know. <laughs> and I was laughing and he was laughing, you know, but it was like, listen, nobody should ever be able to read the second half of Romans 8 who has not read Romans 1 through 7. Never. And if I were to talk about the problems with the with the conservative reformed church in America today, I would say it's, it's, it's a church that's fat and rich and lazy and has plopped its fat self down in the second half of Romans 8 and will not budge. And listen, nobody that does that, no one, has any of the promises in the second half of Romans 8. <laughs> because the people that need Romans 8 are the people who are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. 
okay? Are you all with me? And those people, right about now, are like Peter as he started to sink in the water, right? And he's like, Lord, help me! And right about then, Jesus gives us Romans, the second half of chapter 8. We've gone through chapter 7. And the Apostle Paul's talked about how we don't do what we know we should do, and we do what we know we shouldn't do. And who in the world can save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. And then we get into Romans 8, and the Apostle Paul knows that it's very difficult that we're being attacked by those who hate God, those who hate Jesus, that we're being attacked by our own flesh, that we're losing many battles, and that even battles we're winning, we're so used to losing that it looks like losing to us, you know? And we're disgusted with ourselves, and we think we're drowning. And then the Apostle Paul trots trots out this wonderful chain of gold, where he just goes through, and he just reassures us about our faith. Hey, dude, listen, this is what's true about you. Christian, listen to the truth. This is what's true about you. You know? God knew. Now, remember that knew you is uh, God, it's like a man knowing a woman. Okay, you have to understand that about that word know in Scripture. Do you know your wife? Uh, Yeah. Okay, God knew us. Before we were ever born, Before the universe was ever created, God knew us. And then, God didn't just know us. God then predestinated us. He set his affection on us. He knew us. And then, he chose us. Okay, if if you feel better about chose us than saying he predestinated, even though the word predestinated is the one the Holy Spirit inspired, I guess I'm okay with you saying chose. And, and what? Well, this is the chain. It's linked. It's coupled like two boxcars. He knew us. He predestinated us. And what else did he do? Well, he called us. He conformed us to the image of his son so that he could be the firstborn among many brothers? How does the conforming happen? It happens through suffering and sanctification. It's painful. Do you resemble that implication? You're being sanctified. You should be very happy because it's a sign that God loves you. And so he chose us, he called us, and his call is not ever aborted. When God calls us, in the sense that it's used here, it is effectual, it is effective. It perseveres. And then he changes us, and we become adopted. We become the many brothers that Christ is the firstborn of. And then, and it just keeps going, 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 everything locked with a coupler. And if you've ever 
ever been anywhere around a railroad, you know that couplers don't care, that they ain't a bothered. You remember this, right? You remember couplers will couple through your body and it won't even cause them to cry. Okay? And that's that chain. That chain is absolutely irrefragable. That chain is as firm as any connection that the universe has ever, ever had. And that chain ends with what? You remember? Glorification. And it talks about the glorification that we will have when we die or when Christ returns. It talks about it in present tense. He, or past tense, he has glorified. In other words, it's all over with you. Believer, Christian, it is all over with you. Because God knew you. Okay? And everything connected with him knowing you, his predestination, his call, you're being conformed to the image, your glorification. It's all there. Okay, now, it's precisely at this point in the book that we get to the second half of Romans 8. Okay? And this is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Romans 8, 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? This is the word of the Lord. Father, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, this is a very short text, right? Um, It starts out with a question, and it's one of those places where a question is answered with a question. Now, if this were Siri, I have gotten to be extremely intimate with Siri. Because every time I come home from writing, I play the entire book, chapter by chapter, in emails. You know, I select them and then push speak. And then I listen to Siri, right? Now, if this were Siri, what Siri would do is Siri would completely pervert the text of Scripture at this point. And the reason is that Siri has this uncanny ability of seeing the punctuation mark at the end of a sentence and um, inflecting the sentence in such a way that is anticipatory of the ending poem. So in other words, Siri sees the question mark, and what does Siri do? Well, Siri always, this is how Siri would do this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? So every punctuation question mark, okay, she takes her voice up. You know, because it's a question. But that's not the way to read this. This is actually not inquisitive. This is not to be inflected up. It's to be inflected completely differently. Now, how should it be inflected? What should be the tone? And how should this be said? 
Well, I'm going to give it to you the way I think my father would give it to you. We don't know precisely how the Apostle Paul would have read it. But I'm going to give it to you the way my dad would give it to you. This is my dad. My dad would say, what then shall we say to this, to these things? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who then is against us? Now, that's how my dad would say it. Now, I want to tell you how Wheaton would say it. Or how Christian radio would say it. Christian radio and Wheaton, you know, if any of you are from Wheaton, I'm from Wheaton, so chill out. Okay, take a chill pill. Okay, Wheaton and Christian radio would say it this way. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Now, what's the difference between the two? Okay, what's the difference? Well, the difference is that my father had really suffered in his life. This was nothing cheap to my father. And so when my father inflects these questions, listen to them again. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? What my dad is doing is my dad is being stubborn and understated. Do you know the expression understated? I don't think anybody that's grown up in the media age knows the word understated. <laughs> you know. Now why am I making a big deal about how this is inflected? The reason is that if you go and you read through the book of, of Romans and you arrive at this text in the book of Romans, are you with me? You have been through difficult things. Promises and difficult things at this point. Difficult things and promises and difficult things. Okay? And so when he says, what then shall we say in light of these things? What then shall we say? Given the things that I've been saying, what then shall we say? And then he says, if God is for us, who's against us? If God is for us, who's against us? And you see that when the triumphalist yells this and pronounces it and ollie ollie in frees it, you know. When that triumphalist says that, it cheapens it. Because it's like, oh yeah, isn't that wonderful, you know? And it's like, do you have it in you right now to just receive such a wonderful statement? You know, there's something that stinks about it when it's said like that. You know, every, every song on Christian radio ends with a crescendo with some blonde belting it out. 
and the trumpets and the cymbals and bang, 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 yes! And the truth is most of us in the Christian life most times are not overwhelmed nor even surprised by joy. The truth is that when we say the joy of the Lord is our strength, and when I used to sing it, and I would sing it, the joy of the Lord is my strength, the joy. It was typically an indication of the fact that I was about ready to give up. Right? And that's when you need this text from God. Is when you're so down, you know? You're just so, so sick of your sin. You're so sick of your wife's sin. You're so sick of not having a wife. You're so sick of being sick. You're sick of coronavirus. And you're sick of people hating Jesus. And you're sick of Christians not knowing that people hate Jesus and lying about it. And you're just sick, 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 sick. And then, what then shall we say to these things? What things? Well, yeah, those whom he is, he is, and those whom he has, he has, and those whom he has. But also that which I would, I don't do it. And those things that I don't, don't want to do, I do. What shall, shall we say to these things? Okay, this is what we say. If God is for us. I mean, come on, look at me. If God is for us. Who's against us? Now listen. That's how my father would say it. And when he said, who's against us, he'd immediately think of the death of his oldest son. Remember, I told you about that a couple weeks ago. What waste this precious ointment here outpoured. And he'd say, who's against us? And you'd look at my dad and you'd think, oh, if he can say that, I can say that. And my mother would say, who's against us? And you'd see more metal in that woman than all the millennial men put together. <laughs> I mean, I'm not against millennials. Just millennial men. Okay, that's a joke, just a joke. Just a joke. Who is against us? And be very, very, very precise about this. The world is against you. The world hates God. Until you get that in your head, nothing's going to make sense. The world hates God. For a long time, it's been clear to me that I can predict what the headlines will be in international and national and local news based upon the current hatred of God that the world is most committed to manifesting. 
It's a whole new way of reading headlines. Just look at the latest moral initiative that all the governments of the world have decided that they're going to foist on us and then think, how is this hatred for God? And it's really not complicated. Everything becomes clear for you. Seriously. If you don't understand what's going on sexually in our world today as hatred of God, you don't have a clue. And I'm not just talking about body parts. I'm talking about how women are called to live and how men are called to live. Because really, body parts are a tiny part of sexuality. If you don't look at the green idol of Europe and environmentalism, which for years I was very, very much involved in, and if you don't look at that and see that as a direct attack upon the uniqueness of man, who alone bears the image of God, okay? If you don't understand that the world hates God and therefore hates the creature that bears his image and therefore wants that creature to be relegated in creation, and that's the reason for population control, that's the reason why homosexuals call heterosexuals and always have breeders. And it's not a compliment. If you don't see the battle over children as being a battle over whether God hath said, what has he said? He said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. You can take all of the people in the world and put them in Texas and they all have what? Half an acre, an acre? And if you've ever seen how some of our friends from China live over here at Orchard Glen, that tiny little backyard in their things, have you seen the unbelievable amount of produce that they produce? Produce, produce. In that little space. No, 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 no. The world is not full. And so what we have to understand when we have these promises, who can be against us, is we have to see who's against us. And the fact is the world is opposed to our commitments. Come on. The world is opposed to a couple making fruitful love. Come on, see it. The world is opposed to a lifelong commitment to your husband and your wife. The world is opposed to monogamy. The world is opposed to children waiting for marriage. The world is opposed to beauty. The world is opposed to the image of God. The world is opposed to the worship of God. The world worships the creation instead of the creator who's ever to be praised, as it says in Romans 1. If you don't see that the world hates God, you you cannot appreciate this statement. If God is for us, who's against us? Because you don't think anybody's against you. You just think you have to learn how to get along with people better. And isn't that the classic example of how we treat people like Eric Rasmussen? Well, Eric, you know, honestly, you know, you just... I mean, really. You just need to learn how to get along with people better. You know? 
Don't allow the world to to press you into its mold, as J.B. Phillips translated Romans, you know. And learn how to get along with people better. Both and, both favorites. And if anybody gets mad at anybody at a university in America today who is a Christian, all the other Christians... Stomp on him. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, uh, Eric. You know? Hey, listen, I went through it. I couldn't figure out what I thought about Eric for weeks. I had all these reasons why Eric could have done a better job. I told Eric those reasons. Tell him I'm telling the truth. Yeah, yeah. Listen, here's my point. My entire life, I have suffered, often for my stupidity and obnoxiousness and uh, mouthiness and stubbornness and all my sins, but I also have often suffered for standing for God. And here's the thing, every time you stand for God, you do a lousy job of it. Have you ever noticed that? When you get done standing for God, if there is anything other than adulation and what are these things called? Wreaths or antelopes? Is that what you just said? Oh, halo. Antelope. <laughs> That's stupid. That's an animal. It's not antlers. I thought I was saying something about... I'm 66. I was channeling manliness. Um, Not a halo. The Romans. Laurel. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you get done standing for God and you don't have a laurel on your head and the vibes aren't good and the person doesn't pray to receive Jesus, you just begin to play the tape of what you said, what they said, what your face looked like, what your body posture was like, and you're absolutely convinced that the reason that they got angry with you or the reason that they sent you such a hateful email afterwards is because you didn't done do it right. And that's true. And so for years, I've tried to figure out about the Apostle Paul. Why do we never find the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts being attacked by the church? It's it's a mystery to me. Why doesn't the church attack the Apostle Paul? Because he's giving the church a bad name incessantly. He's causing riots. Why don't we see some hint of Christians being disappointed with the Apostle Paul? Now, it is true that the Apostle Paul does himself show us some of that. You know, Alexander the metal worker has done me great harm, you know? Okay? But it just mystifies me that you can go through the book of Acts and you just don't find incidences of the church attacking the Apostle Paul. And so I've always wondered whether the Apostle Paul felt that he did everything right when he caused the riots. 
You know, I think when he goes into the jail, is he sitting there having the victorious Christian life? Or is he thinking, if God is for us, who's against us? You know, that's a man that is seriously out of touch with reality. Really. If God is for us, who could be against us? But you know something? You know, I have friends that write on the internet about how, how strong they are and how they lift weights and, and, and how men should be manly. Right, you know? And if I ever had to go in battle, I would never want those men next to me. I wouldn't want them anywhere near me. The only man I want near me going into battle is the man that knows he's a coward and weak. But he thinks if God is for us, who can be against us? As a matter of fact, I don't even mind if no man is next to me as long as Eleanor is. (laughs) I mean, are you all with me on that one? I mean, who could you have better next to you going into battle representing Jesus Christ than Eleanor? I just turn to her, I'd say, what next, Eleanor? <laughs> and she'd tell me. Eleanor, this is two weeks in a row. I'll lay, lay off of you. <laughs> it's because we love you, right? We do love you. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, the world hates our master, and we are being conformed to his image. Are you with me? And so if they hate him, and we're being conformed to his image, his likeness, in other words, we're starting to smell like him, they will hate us. And it is not your fault. And you don't have to say Jesus before every word for them to hate you. You can just simply have a thought about the meaning of sexuality today. And the freedom to have that thought actually is your Christian faith. Are you with me? Okay? In other words, Christians can't help but be salty with everything they say and think. And it's not your fault. It's actually your faith. And anybody that tries to take that away from you is trying to make you unsalty. They're trying to hide the light. And you say, well, but it's partly my pride that gets me to say it. I'm like, (laughs) duh. It's probably all your pride. And the Holy Spirit is just managing to gasp out of you truth while you have your pride. And so don't trash the truth you just said, because that's like solipsistic. No, that's a word. You know, that's like the only person you know in the world that exists is you. It's completely narcissistic. It's like, do you really believe the Holy Spirit is incapable of working through you despite your pride? I mean, he loved you when you were his enemy. He chose you before you ever had any existence, let alone any inclination to him. He produced in you faith. He produced in you repentance. He gave them to you. 
and he is producing holiness, and it's not because you want it. Trust me. Now, they hate your master. You're beginning to smell like him and look like him, and so they're going to hate you, okay? And then you've got the problem of the simple disciplines that God puts in your life, and then you've got the problem of your own sin. And so if God is for us, who can be against us? You know? And you say, well, I'm against myself. And I say, oh, really? So that's going to present problems for God, huh? Well, he's against himself. I guess my hands are tied. None of this depends on you. Every good and perfect gift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every good and perfect gift cometh down from above, falling down from the Father of the heavenly lights. If God is for you, who can be against you? You remember my using the Jerry Clower story a few weeks ago? You know, he's trying to get the feminist to take a seat. And she says, she keeps saying, you sit down! My ancestors would come up out of the grave and get me if I don't offer you this chair. You sit down! And she keeps yelling at him to sit down. He's just trying to be a gentleman. And then finally, he says what? You remember? Any of you remember? He says, I ain't going to do it. Which, of course, was very difficult for him to say because it was to directly contradict a woman. And his ancestors were going to come up out of the grave and get him for that. But at some point, isn't that how you have to treat feminism? I ain't going to do it. You know, a man who goes low with his voice. Feminism doesn't have an answer for that. Manly resolve. That's the Apostle Paul here. If God is for us, who can be against us? Stubborn Joe Bailey. Stubborn Apostle Paul. And that stubbornness is faith. There's nothing wrong with being stubborn in the service of faith. An awful lot of holiness is the product, the fruit of stubbornness in the service of faith. I ain't going to do it. Wouldn't that be wonderful if every Christian man, when he looks at his computer and wants strange flesh, just sort of went, I ain't going to do it. I ain't going to do it. If God is for me, who can be against me? And then, this, this beautiful, beautiful statement. He who did not spare his own son. <laughs> Who's that he? That's the father. And he didn't spare his own son. It's very interesting here that Haldane, the, the Scottish guy that's been the most help to me in preaching through Romans, and you can find him free on the internet. You can read him on the internet. But Haldane at this point says, um, as a matter of fact, I'm going to read it to you. He says this. He says, uh, 
He says, uh, he says, it is sonship in this sense only that shows the immensity of the love of God in this gift. In other words, this gift that God has given is unbelievably huge, unbelievably huge. And the hugeness of it is shown through the love of God, specifically in him giving his son. And then he says, this proves that it was greater than if he had given the whole creation. Okay? And then he says, if his son were related to him in merely a figurative sonship, it could not be a proof of his ineffable love. Now listen, you know how we always talk here about how perverse sexuality is today. And so what everybody does with any of the mentions of the fatherhood of God and the sonship of Jesus Christ. I went to a church with Mary Lee last Sunday. It was was a good service. But at one point, oh, at one point, the person leading us, quoting the Nicene Creed, said this. He said, Jesus Christ, are you ready? Jesus Christ was fully God, okay so far? And fully human. No, Jesus Christ was not fully human. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. And we're so scandalized by sex-specific terms. Human is intentionally used today to remove man. It is true Jesus was fully human. But quoting the Nicene Creed, never, ever, ever say Jesus is fully God and fully human. Jesus is a man. And the reason I'm bringing this up is, it says here, he who did not spare his own human. Or it says, he who did not spare his own child. He who did not spare his own descendant. No, it says son. Why does it say son? Well, because Jesus was a son. Why was Jesus a son? I mean, these are questions that are verboten today. Why was Jesus a son? Couldn't he have been a daughter? And if you listen to the environmentalists, couldn't he have been a dog? Jesus was a son because Adam is a man. And the second Adam had to be a man. And if we begin to relegate the language of the Father and Son in the Trinity to just being allegorical, or what was the word he used here? To just being figurative. You know, if we begin to be condescending towards ancient language that's so patriarchal, right? What Haldane says is we have no clue, no clue of the preciousness of God's purchase of us with the blood of his own son. I was talking to Jurgen when we were up there writing a couple weeks ago, and one night we got talking about the death of children. And I said to him, I said, you know, Jurgen, I've known of the death of several sons of Christian leaders. And then I named uh, Leighton Ford, Billy Graham's brother-in-law. I named Chick Coop. Uh, 
and I named my dad. And I said, it's my observation that when a father loses a son, particularly if it is his oldest son, he never recovers. Never. He who did not spare his own son. Oh, the but delivered him. You know, some people would want to change the word to allowed him. Some people have such, such little thoughts of God. But it says he delivered him. Oh, Father, If it be possible, would you take this cup from me? And nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And God delivered him. He delivered him over for us all, and you say, well, I, I didn't have devotions this week. And so I'm not sure he delivered him up for me. I committed adultery. I'm a drunkard. I killed my unborn child. Listen, you're here. Why? You're here because you have faith. And so you are for us all. You're all. It's not Tim, but not Daniel. It's not Bob and Daniel, but not Tim. It's not Jody and Jenna, but not Tim and Mary Lee. It's not, Joni isn't left behind. For us all. This is your birthright. Your birthright is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And how precious is it? You know, the book that I just finished, or Jürgen and I are just finishing, is a book on eldership. And there is a text in Scripture that just makes my blood run cold from fear, and that's Acts 20, where the Apostle Paul says, none of, my, none of your blood is on my hands, Right? And then he speaks about how these precious sheep that the elders are to care for, that they have been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. It's like, are you kidding me? You're not going to care for your sheep as an elder? Seriously? (laughs) He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. And you're an elder, you're a pastor, you're a deacon, you're a Titus II woman, and you do not care for the sheep in your church? Are you kidding me? 
He did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. And then we have an argument from the greater to the lesser. Okay? We have an argument that goes from the precious blood of Jesus Christ, given by his loving Father who loved you and loved us all. How will he not give us all things? (laughs) You know? And Jesus lowers, condescends to us so far that he says, don't worry about what clothes you wear. (laughs) You know? I mean, you know, all things considered here, right? Okay? Clothes. In fact, the argument is even made about the hairs on your head. If God has given all of us his son, he will freely give us all things. We don't need to worry about coronavirus. We don't need to worry about what we wear. We don't need to worry about the addition getting done. I'm channeling a few facial tics here. (laughs) Now, one last thing, we'll be done. Um, Calvin... um, Calvin's talking about this, and he says, he says um, what we need to do is we need to anchor ourselves in the fundamental truth that God has given us, his son, from his love, and that he will give us everything. And so all things work together for good. God's call, God's victorious glorification of us, uh, our safety, our victory, these things are secured. So Calvin's opening up the text and saying he will give us all things, right? And then he says, we have a habit of always judging our relationship with God based on what's going on right now, okay? And he says, so we look at what our life is like and we say, well, things aren't going good right now. And then we judge that things aren't good with God because things aren't going well with us right now. And then we get drowning in our own self-condemnation and self-pity and whining and all this other stuff, right? And he says, this is, this is the way, and he says what the Apostle Paul is saying is, get out of that and look at the truth. He will give us all things. Now, you're all with him, right? You're all with him. And then he says this, He says, I admit, this is right afterwards, he says, I admit that the scourges of God, when God punishes us, okay, I admit that the scourges of God are rightly reckoned in themselves to be the signs of God's wrath. (laughs) It's like, Calvin, would you please take a chill pill? It's like he doesn't miss any opportunity to like, shove us back down where we just crawled out from. You know? He's just giving us the victorious Christian life. Anchor yourself in the truth. And if God gave us his son, then he will give us all things. Now, I admit that scourges are God's wrath. And you're just bouncing. You know, it's like you're the, you know, the ball between tennis rackets. It's like, okay, come on, John. Which is it? 
Is it scourges or God's wrath? You just got done telling me to not just look at my life and and think that things are going bad because I'm suffering right now, but things are actually good. You just got done telling me to have faith for things going bad because that's not the reality. The reality is he'll give us all things. And then you tell me, I admit that scourges are a sign of his wrath. So which is it, right? And he says, but since they are consecrated in Christ, Paul calls the saints to hold tightly to the fatherly love of God before everything else, so that by relying on this shield, they may confidently triumph over all evil. And listen, this is a very important lesson for us to learn. Very important. It's not either or. Those whom he loves, he chastens. And so even the chastening of God, even the scourging of God is precious to us and gives us joy because we know we belong to him, because we know we're his son. And every one of you who has ever spanked one of your children when they were little has seen this. It's the weirdest thing in the world when you inflict pain on their behind, right? And then you pull them to yourself, not in a hackneyed way. All right, now, daddy loves you, doesn't daddy love you? Okay, now come to me. Okay, I hit you, but now come to me because daddy loves you. Now, did you hear me? Daddy loves you. No, I'm not talking about that. That's bad. (laughs) Sorry, but it is bad. What you want to be is natural as a parent as a father. And what's natural is that when your child disrespects your wife, he goes into the bedroom and he gets his butt hit. You will not tolerate someone dissing your bride, right? It's just fundamental. And then, as soon as you hit him, it's over. And then you hug him. Why? Well, because you hit him because you love him and you love your wife. And you probably didn't love him nearly as much at any other moment of that day as when you just hit him. And so it's the most natural thing in the world to just hug him and kiss him and say, let's go have dinner. Do you see this? And this is God. God is loving us when he scourges us. And it's no threat to he will freely give us everything. And he done be giving us things as he scourges us. And so we have to learn to live in his hands, trusting him that even the most painful things in our love are his love, in our life are his love. And that's why my parents said that they were never as certain of the love of God as when they walked away from the grave of one of their children. Okay? Now, as I was preparing to preach, at this point, I just thought the only response we can have to this is just to worship. And so I want us to sing one hymn a cappella, and then the, the musicians and Jody are going to come up and lead us in a second one. But stand up, and let's, let's love God for this unbelievable kindness and, and unbelievable joy that is the Christian life.